Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Zechariah chapter 5. Chapter 5 tells the story of the 6th and 7th of Zechariah's eight night visions. Let me just run through the sequence again uh, for the sake of orientation. The first night vision was about the horses. That was God saying, I see what's happening in the world. I'm not asleep. I know what's going on. I'm on top of it. The second night vision was about the horns. That was God reassuring the people that he has a plan for punishing and paying back every global power that has oppressed and terrorized the covenant community. The third night vision was the one with the measuring line. That was God telling the people that he has big plans for them, bigger plans even than they could dream or hope for themselves. Then the fourth night vision, which took up all of chapter 3, was about the forgiveness and restoration of Joshua the high priest. The restoration of the ministry of the covenant community pointed forward to the coming branch and the special stone, two symbols that anticipate Messiah. The fifth night vision featured a golden lampstand. That represented God's presence with them and God's witness through them. And the promise there was that God himself would rebuild, relight, and refuel their covenant ministry. Here in chapter 5, as I mentioned, we have the sixth and seventh night vision. These two visions depict God actively judging the wicked, and driving evil and idolatry out of the land. Let's begin with the sixth vision, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is twenty cubits, and its width ten cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones." Now, once again, the essential meaning of this vision lies fairly close to the surface, though, again, there's some disagreement, some contention over some of the fine details. The basic message is that God is actively working to confront and root out all sin and all causes of sin from within the covenant community. Remember, it was sin that got them into trouble in the first place. Sin is always the biggest problem. And while the exile did a great deal to humble and chasten the people, the problem of sin remains. And this is God saying that he isn't finished addressing and opposing the sin of his people. The imagery that conveys that message is, of course, the giant flying scroll. Scrolls are usually associated with scripture. And the idea of the curse is associated with the covenant, particularly as represented in the book of Deuteronomy. So you may recall that at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people that when they cross over into the promised land, they're to engage in a bit of 
catechetical theater, I guess you could say. Half of the tribes are to assemble on Mount Gerizim to speak the words of blessing, and the other half of the tribes are to assemble on Mount Ebal, and they're to speak the words of cursing. And of course, the big valley in between was supposed to communicate the huge chasm that exists between the blessed life of God and the cursed life of rebellion. The blessing is conceived of mostly in terms of things like fertility, increase, health, victory over enemies. And the curse is conceived of as basically the opposite of that. The person who is living outside the covenant and separated from the blessings of God is, is going to feel that curse in his basket, in his kneading bowl, which is to say his harvest is going to suffer, his cupboard is going to be bare, he's going to get sick a lot, his home is going to collapse, his animals are going to miscarry, he's going to falter in battle, his children and his wife are going to be taken captive by the enemy, etc. So the curse is very bad. It is life in the grip of the devil, whereas to be blessed is to live life in the grip of God. Blessing and cursing are relational categories. To be in right relationship with God is to be plugged in to the source of all vitality, health, increase, strength, and nobility. To be unplugged from that is, of course, to wither, to decrease, to diminish, to fade, and eventually to die. All right, so we've got a giant flying scroll that the interpreting angel associates with the curse. He says, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. He cites the third and eighth commandment there as a way of representing both tables of the law, both our duty to God and our duty to our fellow man. And this curse is going to go out from the presence of God like a heat-seeking missile. This, of course, is a symbolic way of saying, if you want to cherish sin in your heart or in your home, then understand this. You are attracting the strong, punishing, and purifying providence of God. So don't do it. God is going to attack their sin. That's the message, because it is their sin that is destroying them. So that's the essence of the vision. But as I mentioned, there is some disagreement, some contention around some of the fine details. For example, scholars wonder, is there any significance to the particular dimensions of the flying scroll? It is remarkably large. 20 cubits by 10 cubits would be roughly 10 meters by 5 meters if you're a metric person, or 33 feet by 16 and a half feet if you're an American. No matter where you come from, that's a big scroll. So are we just supposed to be impressed by the size, or is there some meaning there? Some scholars see a reference to the dimensions of the porch in Solomon's temple, which is exactly the same size. Others see a potential reference to the dimensions of the holy place in the original tabernacle, which some say was exactly the same size. Jerome, the church father, writing in the 4th and 5th centuries AD, took an allegorical approach. He saw a reference to the preaching of Jesus, because Jesus began preaching in his 30th year. And if you add 20 and 10, you get 30. So maybe that's it. And of course, as a Protestant, I have a very hard time giving that kind of allegorical interpretation any credence at all. There's just too much John Calvin in me for that. 
Calvin didn't seem to put much stock in any of these sort of speculative answers. He said bluntly, I do not feel anxious to know why the length or the breadth is mentioned, for it seems not to be much connected with the main subject. Close quote. I find myself landing in roughly the same place. I, I don't think the exact dimensions carry any particular meaning. I think if we were supposed to see something there, it would be more explicit. I think this is just a remarkably big scroll and that the immense size is intended simply to underscore the magnitude of God's settled antagonism towards sin and the strength of his resolve to root it out permanently from within the covenant community. All right, let's move on now to the seventh vision, beginning at verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, To the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Quote. The seventh vision features a woman in a basket. Most commentators agree that this woman is intended to symbolize the particular sin of idolatry. In verse 8, the angel explains the woman by saying, this is wickedness. Now that phrase in Hebrew appears to be a kind of anagram for the name Asherah. So an anagram is when you take the letters for one word and you rearrange them to make another word. So you can do that, for example, with cinema. If you take the letters for cinema and rearrange them, you can make the phrase or the word Iceman. And so an anagram is a way of talking about one thing while seeming to be talking about another. And that seems to be what's happening here. Uh, we're talking about Asherah. We're talking about one of the main pagan goddesses that caused so much trouble in the years leading up to the exile. In the great reform attempted by King Josiah, for example, a lot of what they were targeting was the worship of Asherah, even by the priests who were serving in the temple of Yahweh. 2 Kings 23, 4-7, for example, says, And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron, and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests, whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the host of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord. And that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, meaning Yahweh. So he brought out the Asherah from the house of Yahweh outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron, and burned it at the brook Kidron, and beat it to dust, and cast the dust of it 
upon the graves of the common people, and he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah, closed quote. Most of us have kind of blocked this part of the story out of our minds. But when we read the Bible, we discover that in the years leading up to the exile, Israel was only nominally a Jewish nation in terms of their religion. By this point in the narrative, they're basically no different than the people around them. They are worshiping Canaanite gods and goddesses in the temple. I mean, can you even imagine that? The worship of Asherah was particularly disgusting. She was portrayed as a nude female, sometimes pregnant, usually with exaggerated breasts. She was typically worshipped near trees or poles called Asherah poles. She was worshipped in a variety of ways, including through ritual sex. Through a practice known as synthetic magic, worshippers tried to influence the gods through their own ritual behavior. So, priests and cult prostitutes would have sex before the gods to try and encourage the gods to copulate, thus ensuring a good harvest or a fertile womb. The entire practice was disgusting, degraded, and demented. And yet, the Bible is brutally honest about the fact that for centuries, it was common practice among the Israelites. In 2 Kings 23, 4-7, the passage we just read, the king gives a command to have pagan priests and cult prostitutes removed from the temple of Yahweh, meaning they were in the temple of Yahweh in the first place. They were settled in. How in the world did that happen? I mean, can you even imagine that? That, that would be like going to a, a Christian church today and discovering that they were operating a brothel in the basement as part of their outreach to the community. That, that, that's literally what's going on in this story. The Old Covenant Church is a completely fallen house. That's what led to the exile. And here in these visions, God is saying, we're not going back to that place, friends. It will be onwards and upwards from now on, no matter the cost to you or to me. So in the vision of the flying scroll, that was God saying, I'm turning up the heat on sin. I'm coming for you. If I have to grind your house into the dust, I will not let you settle down into your sin. And now here in the seventh vision, the vision of the woman in the basket, he says, I'm going to purge the idolatry right out of your bones. I'm taking it away. And so the woman is forced down into a basket and a leaden cover is put down upon her head. So she's not getting out of there. She's locked in that basket now. And then two angels come forward, two other women. These women are agents of Almighty God, and they take the woman in the basket, and they carry her away to Shinar, which is another name for idolatry. They're going to take idolatry back to where it came from, and they're going to leave it there. Now, what's interesting is that after the Babylonian exile, there is no further mention of idolatry among the people of Israel. They have Tons of other problems, obviously. But you can't help but notice that in the New Testament, Jesus is not going around pulling pagan priests and cult prostitutes out of the temple in Jerusalem. That, that was not a thing, right? The exile cured them of idolatry, at least in its original form. When the New Testament apostles speak about idolatry, they're now using the term in a symbolic sense as in a corrupting desire that is contrary to the will of God, or a false allegiance that undermines your loyalty to Christ. Meaning, they understand Old Testament idolatry as presenting a picture of what can happen when foreign desires are permitted a resting place in the heart of the believer. 
But they are no longer addressing actual or literal idolatry, by and large. That particular demon has been expunged. That poison has been leached. That particular wickedness has been shoved into a basket. A leaden weight has been fixed upon it, and it has been taken away to a place from whence it shall not return. Thanks be to God. Now, before we leave this chapter, this feels like as good a time as any to talk about the various senses in which these prophecies were and have been fulfilled. Generally speaking, when it comes to Old Testament prophecy, the likes of which we're seeing here in the book of Zechariah, there are three senses in which the prophecy may function and may said to be fulfilled. There is first the immediate sense. The immediate reference here with respect to the woman in the basket is, as we've said, to the struggle of idolatry that had plagued the people of Israel since their sojourn in Egypt. The gods of Egypt and then later of their Canaanite neighbors had always held an attraction for them. The worship seemed more amenable to their immediate desires and cultural frame of reference. And so the vision here in Zechariah 5 most immediately refers to God's stated intention to cure them of that particular form of idolatry. He's going to take it away. He's going to leach that poison out of them. He's going to put it in a basket and lock it away in the land from whence it came. And he did. That's the immediate sense of the prophecy. And yet there's a continuing sense in which the prophecy functions as an ongoing perpetual pattern. The people are always falling subject to the lure of a particular type of idolatry, and God is always working actively to heal the people of that idolatry and to separate the people from those forces in the world which would seek to destroy them. So there is that sense too, the perpetual sense, the ongoing pattern or paradigmatic sense. As I said, that seems to be the sense in which the apostles are using and picking up that imagery in the New Testament. And then thirdly, there is an ultimate sense. These patterns and paradigms ramp up, as it were, and find their ultimate final fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. So take the first vision in this chapter, for example. There is a curse going out from God, like a heat-seeking missile. It is attracted to hidden sin. It opposes sin. It brings ruin and devastation upon all who cherish sin in their hearts and in their homes. Okay. That was immediately true in post-exilic Israel. It is perpetually true in the sense that the curse is always going out and working ruin wherever sin is cherished. But there is a sense, too, in which ultimately this imagery climaxes in the work of Christ on the cross. When he takes all the sins of God's people into himself, like drinking a giant cup of the sin and wickedness and rebellion of all those who confess their sins and claim him as their savior and substitute. When he does that, he, of course, becomes a massive target for that heat-seeking missile that is the curse. That missile senses Christ on the cross. It is attracted to the sin that he now bears, and it explodes upon him as he hangs there on our behalf. That's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Close quote. That's Galatians 3, 13-14. So Christ redeemed us from the curse by absorbing the curse when he hung upon the tree. 
You can picture that giant heat-seeking missile exploding into the chest of Jesus Christ and itself being consumed by his infinite worth and holiness in that moment. The moment of his glorious, beautiful, effectual death on the cross, the world changed. The curse was transformed into blessing for all those who put their faith in him. That's where the storyline of the curse ends. It ends in the body of Jesus on the cross. And now, if you are in Christ, then you can only be blessed. You can't be cursed. You won't be cursed. You are not cursed. There is no heat-seeking missile from God looking for you. There is only his desire to bless, grow, purify, change, and transform you. And likewise, we see a third sense, an ultimate sense, in terms of the fulfillment of the prophecy about the woman in the basket. We've talked about the first sense, the immediate sense, and the perpetual sense, but there is a third sense for this prophecy as well. The ultimate end of this pattern is depicted in the book of Revelation in the story of the whore of Babylon. The whore of Babylon is the woman in the basket. That connection is intentional. There's no subtlety here at all. Remember, Asherah was a naked woman with exaggerated sexual characteristics who seduced the Old Testament church into compromise, degradation, and deadly dilution. (laughs) Okay, well, that's the whore of Babylon. And where did the woman in the basket go? She was imprisoned in a house in Shinar, which is Babylon. Again, the symbolism here isn't even trying to be subtle. This is bottom shelf stuff for the Bible reader. And so again, there was an immediate fulfillment. There was a perpetual pattern, and there is an ultimate end. The whore of Babylon is finally, utterly, and eternally cast down as part of the lead-up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Revelation 18.8 puts it this way, For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Close quote. The Lord has a plan. And the Lord has a day for punishing every power, human, political, angelic, or demonic, who has ever persecuted, oppressed, seduced, abused, or misled his people. He is not sleeping. He sees, he surveys, he weighs, he watches, and when the time is right, he acts. And in the end, Every seducing influence, every cause and instigator of sin will be forced down into a basket and that basket will be taken away and buried in a place where it can no more influence or undermine the people of God. This is what Jesus prophesied in Matthew 13, 40 to 43. He said, at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all law breakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father forever. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. 
Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 